this is Sergeant Betsy Brander-Smith with the National Police Association, and this is the NPA Report. I have a terrific guest with me today. We uh, were buddies on Twitter, and he has so much knowledge when it comes to law enforcement and national security, and uh, I'm, he's just a terrific guest, and I'm excited to welcome Detective Angel Masonette. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, Angel, based on your decades of experience uh, and your decades with NYPD, can you explain what stop and frisk uh, was and why it was so good for the safety of uh, the citizens of New York and, and, and why it's a bad thing that we got rid of it? Can you talk about that a little bit? So, yes. Yeah, so, uh, stop and frisk was basically a tool to get guns off the street, right? Um, as I, I worked in anti-crime, which is basically plainclothes patrol. I did that for about a year and a half, right around the time where uh, the Diallo, the Amdo Diallo shooting occurred in the Bronx in the 4th three, the street crime shooting. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we would target areas, high crime areas, right? Um, and the people we stopped, usually either A, for the description, or uh, in my case, I worked in a predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhood. So the people I stopped were black and Hispanic. Um, if I was working on Madison Avenue and the bulk of the crimes being committed were by white individuals, I would have been stopping white individuals for stop, question, and frisk, right? Um, <clears throat> we, uh, the people wanted it there. Most of the community, when they saw us, you know, jumping out of the cars and grabbing people um, and uh, searching them or, or, you know, speaking to them first, obviously, letting them know why we're stopping them, they wanted us there. Most of the community um, appreciated the work we did, right? Usually we would be sent to a specific area if there was an uptick in shootings or if there was a recent like a homicide or robbery pattern going on. And um, it was a really useful tool in getting guns off the street. The, the, the perps knew that we would do it. So therefore they would hesitate, you know, to walk around armed. Now, as we can see in the city, in New York and other metropolitan areas, right? Uh, there's no repercussions uh, for walking around armed, right? They, they're not afraid of, you know, three guys jumping out of an unmarked police car or a taxi that looks like a police car. Now they're looking for blue and whites, right? Or whatever color the agency's cars are. And they're not worried about people jumping out in plain clothes because they know they just have to deal with the uniform officers. So obviously it's an uptick in crime, uptick in, you know, violence and unfortunately, you know, homicides. Well, and when we see this uptick in crime, it's, you, it's very often in neighborhoods where, you know, people rely on the police, right, to help protect Absolutely. them and protect their children. It, it just seems Absolutely. so silly to get rid of a tool. How did Stop and Frisk become so politicized? So uh, one of the reasons was what I mentioned before, the Amadou Diallo uh, shooting, right? Uh, he was an uh, African immigrant, a uh, taxi driver, uh, and he, they were uh, uh, addressing a rape pattern in the Bronx. Um, he happened to fit the description. There was a language barrier. They questioned him. He reached, and, you know, uh, there was a contagious fire, as they like to call it, right? Mm -hmm. One round by one of the officers. Everybody else started shooting. They thought they were getting shot back because it was in a hallway, right, because the rounds were ricocheting. Boom, 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 boom. Unfortunately, he lost his life. Um, so that brought it 
into the spotlight. Um, and then, of course, um, the vultures, right, like Al Sharpton and people of that nature, right, they jump onto the uh, bandwagon and they start saying, well, this is systemically racist stuff. Police are, you know, hunting our people like, like predators and, you know, where the where the, uh, uh, the 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 so-called meat, you know, for the for the for the predators, and it ended up getting crazy and taking on a life of its own, and then you know, as it moved forward, they ended up getting rid of it in the the Blasio administration. So New York City went from being the safest large city in the United States to uh, now we're seeing a pattern of uh, increased violent crime. We have, um, uh, in, in now everyone gets out right on bail. I mean, there is no bail. Um, it must be incredibly frustrating for, uh, for law enforcement there, am I correct? Absolutely. So these prosecutors, uh, you know, you'll charge somebody with a violent felony, right? Or robbery, whatever the case may be. Um, and before you're done drawing up the paperwork, the next thing you know, the district attorney doesn't consult with you and they, they call it in New York, they call it deemed down the charges. So it'll go from, let's say, a robbery to a, uh, they'll knock it down to like a disorderly conduct or a criminal trespass and they'll let the person out. Um, unfortunately, now where it's progressed, right, because they like to call themselves progressives, right? It's, it's progressed to the point where um, uh, unless you kill somebody, right, um, unfortunately, they're not giving you bail. Uh, they're letting you out. These these repeat offenders uh, uh, constantly. It's a revolving door. You know they like to say that the justice system is systemically racist, but they're letting these people go without consequences, right? And these are black and brown people who are committing crimes in black and brown communities. That's not a racist thing. It's it's the truth. You know facts don't care about your feelings. Facts before feelings. And the the facts are that in the majority of black and brown neighborhoods, the people who are committing the crimes are black and brown people. So, right, they get all this systemically racism stuff that's coming out, and then they end up letting them go because all oh, the justice system unfairly treats people who are, who are minorities, and then they go out, and then they go out, and who, who do they terrorize? They terrorize communities of color, right? So it's an oxymoron is what it, it is. It is, and it's, it's incredibly frustrating. <clears throat> And now we're in the middle of this defund the police movement, uh, you know, nationwide. Um, how, and you're, you're very uh, well informed when it comes to national policing issues. How is the defund the police movement affecting law enforcement nationwide? And not just law enforcement. How does it affect our citizens, Angel? Everybody. So like I, like, I, I, like I said before, it's the biggest oxymoron there is, right? Because so take the LAPD, for example. They're getting rid of their sex crimes investigations unit, right? So now what's going to happen? They're going to have less people because it is defund the police movement. This is defund the police nonsense. They're going to have less trained investigators to address, right, sex crimes. So I have a young daughter, right? I have sisters. I have five sisters, okay? I mean, this is, um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's an oxymoron because they, they're claiming that, they're going to take money from the police department and give it towards better training and to help people and communities of color, but they're actually hurting communities of color because the police who are dealing with violent crimes, right, in most metropolitan areas, they're communities of color. So if they're running in and they're dealing with all these crimes in the communities of color and now you're taking them away, 
you have no more trained investigators, you have no more resources, you don't have, I mean, it's simple as having the proper radio equipment, uh, having the proper vehicles to respond, having a safe room where you could have, you could bring a, a victim of a sex crime into a room uh, that's, you know, uh, the right color, right, with all the, the psychology that's involved in interviewing uh, victims of, uh, you know, sex crimes, and you don't have resources for that, right? So now that room will become a, a broom closet, right? Uh, or, or something like that. It's just, I mean, it's, 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 it sounds so stupid, but sometimes you have to dumb it down so people can get it. And, you know, the people see it, but they refuse to believe it. It's in front of their face. And it, all it's doing is hurting, hurting black and brown people. That's all it's doing. It's an oxymoron. It's the ultimate oxymoron. And you make a good point that, that, some of the most vulnerable people uh, who are going to be hurt by this are women, young women, um, you know, and that's the thing too. I have daughters, I have a granddaughter, you know, and this is, this is just frightening because we aren't going to have the resources to be able to deal with these predators, to be able to uh, not only investigate, but to prosecute these crimes against women, not just sexual assault, but domestic violence. You know, we're going to have what? Uniformed social workers respond to now to domestic violence calls and do what? Negotiate a, a, a settlement in the household? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Just last week, there was a domestic violence call here in New York City. Uh, two officers went there. The victim went to the precinct, got them. They went back to the house. And what ends up happening? They both get shot. Right. And then they end up uh, uh, having a shootout with the uh, perpetrator, right? The abuser who was in the home, who happened to have a firearm. What's a, what's a licensed therapist going to do in that situation? And it's certainly not to dim diminish the work that they do, right? It's important work to work together, right? In conjunction with the police department, to have a collaboration so that at the end of the day, you take them to victim services and you have therapists that deal with them. But on a street level, it can't happen. It can't happen. It's too dangerous. It goes from zero to 100, and you know this. I'm preaching oh, yeah. to the choir. Zero to 100 in a split second. The, 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 the caca hits the fan, and, you know, uh, uh, you know life-changing life decisions. And, and, you know, you, you can't have a therapist doing that in the street. It just doesn't make sense. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, and you and I have been involved in law enforcement for so long, and we got involved in this because we wanted to help people. We wanted to help our communities. And, and now, do you think people are leaving this profession? I mean, what do you see in New York and, and around the country? Absolutely. So in New York, I mean, there, there's 40 cops a day retiring. You know, basically, they, they, they've had to turn police officers away and say, hey, you know, you got to come back you know, uh, another day or in a week or two weeks, um, people are doing uh, what's called 20 and out, right? Before, like when I was on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, before I retired, I was going to do 35 years, you know. Um, I ended up, you know, leaving to go to the private sector, but, um, you know, because I kind of saw the writing on the wall, but this is what's happening, right? It's getting progressively worse. So police are saying, well, I can't be proactive, um, anything and everything I do is scrutinized, right? We're under a complete microscope. Um, we are the most marginalized members of society right now. And, and I'll argue that point with anyone. Police officers are the most marginalized members of society right now. They are critiqued like nobody's business. Um, I'm, I'm risking my pension. I'm risking my livelihood. And ultimately, I'm risking my life, right? Because when I go into a situation where I may have to use deadly physical force, that split second where I say, wait a second. The camera's watching that I do everything I had to do. 
lights out, you're done, you're gone. And so, yeah, they're leaving in droves. It's, it's, it's really, really sad. And then now the next challenge is going to be to get the young people who want to make a difference, who want to make a change, who still believe in law and order, because there are a lot of young people out there that still do, to get them to, 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 to you know, pick up the ball and run with it. And uh, there's problems in recruiting across the country. Okay, nobody wants to become a cop because of all the reasons I explained before. Um, uh, they have this college requirement to, to which I, when I became a cop in 1992, all I had was a high school diploma. I think, and I came from the inner city, okay? I grew up in the Bronx. Uh, my grandparents lived in the projects. That was my summer home in the housing projects in the, in the South Bronx, Patterson houses. Um, but I was street smart. So it made me a better cop, I think. Now you got kids, now you're acquiring this college. You know, why? What the, college doesn't make you a better patrol officer. Maybe to get into management, I can see it, but to become a cop, what do you need college for? So you can't get kids in the inner city who can't afford to go to college like myself. I couldn't go to college because I had to work to help my mother pay the bills. Mm -hmm. You know, so if they had college requirement back then, guess what? I wouldn't have been a cop. I wouldn't have been a cop. So well, it's, it's, it's a horrible challenge. Exactly. And, and now we can't even, you know, it, it's hard to get people to come and commit to being an inner city cop where they grew up. I, I know one of the things we're seeing is, is people, if they're able to, they go, they go west or they go south. They go to places where law and order, you know, places like Florida or Arizona or Wyoming, where law and order is still a thing. And... Um, and, you know, so is New York and Chicago and L.A., are they going to run out of cops eventually? I mean, so when I got on a job, there was about 38,000 of us, right? Uh, they, they like to say that we were like the third largest army in the free world, the NYPD. Now there's about 33,000. So you're talking about 27 years ago, 28 years ago. Um, I mean, it, the numbers are dwindling and we're going to end up running. So what happens is, right, then they're going to start having to forget about college. They're going to have to start, you know, um, uh, lowering the requirements, right? The qualifications that you're going to need. So a person that's going to go to a psychological evaluation, whereas before, when you had people kicking the door down to take the job, they were going to be uh, uh, high, you know, they were going to be disqualified. Uh, now it's like, oh, well, you know, the person, you know, whatever criteria doesn't actually meet it, but we're desperate. So we're going to have to, we need a warm body in a uniform or in a patrol car. And they're ju that's just what they're going to do. They're going to put a warm body uh, uh, in, the, in the job, someone who's not qualified, someone who's never had to use their hands to get into a physical altercation in their life. Uh, and someone who's going to put themselves, their fellow officers and the public at a greater risk. So again, it's another oxymoron. They're hurting black and brown communities, uh, you know, and, and, and they're claiming that they're helping. And it's not. It's not helping. It's not. Yeah, it's all incredibly frustrating. And, and when we talk about, um, for example, in New York, you know, NYPD just has to deal with so many different things. And you were on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Uh, one of the things you don't hear a lot of talk about anymore is radical Islam. Are, are we... Are we at risk, at continued risk for terrorism attacks in this country? Or has that all just gone away when we talk about defunding the police now? Huh. Well, we, we know it's kind of a rhetorical question. We know it's, it's not going away. Uh, these people are watching us and they're salivating, chomping at the bit. They love it. 
Uh, the political climate in this country is totally out of control. The hatred, uh, the disdain for law enforcement is totally out of control. These people are salivating, chomping at the bit, and waiting for an opportunity to get at us when we least expect it. Just like they caught us with our pants down on September 11th, they're waiting for another opportunity. Trust and believe. They're relishing in the fact that we're rotting from within and we're and we're eating our own. Um, there's there's there are so many plots and so many things that are disrupted by the intelligence community in this country, uh, with the help of the local uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force, uh, uh, the various offices in the country that the public has no idea, and all this stuff. Is defunding the police. Guess what? It costs a lot of money to send a, what they call a TFO, a task force officer, from a small, uh, you know, uh, a police department in in rural California to send them to detail them out to the Joint Terrorism Task Force, you know, in LA or in Sacramento or wherever it is. It costs money, and you get no money, you get no cops, you get no TFOs, you get no police. So there are no test task force officers on a JTTF, and it ends up elevating itself, right? Um, uh, there's no help from local law enforcement and the threat uh, for terrorism, you know, domestic, foreign and domestic, uh, is real, is real. It's yeah. never gonna go away. It, it, absolutely, and that, that's what we, when we talk about defunding the police, what goes first is of course training. And we, right. we expect cops to know so much about so many things and now specialized training in dealing with terrorism or domestic violence or, you know, uh, large-scale narcotics and all kinds of things, the training's not going to be there, right? We're going to end up with, like you said, very basic cops in very basic patrol cars to go out and do very basic policing. And that's not what keeps our people safe. Absolutely not. I mean, uh, look at ICE, for example, right? ICE is a huge, huge part of protecting the borders in this country. And uh, they want to attack ICE, uh, you know, these politicians like Ilhan Omar and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, defund the ICE, abolish ICE. ICE protects black and brown folks from human trafficking, from drug smuggling, from weapons trafficking. You know, they have no idea the, the stupidity that they're advocating for and the dangerous, uh, uh, the, this clear and present danger that's at our borders every day that ICE addresses and they, and they advocate to abolish. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. It really well, it is. is. It's silliness. I mean, I live 80 miles from the southern border, and the hard work that our um, federal agents uh, combined with our local law enforcement, the hard work that they put in at the border, and the, the amazing amount of drugs that they take off the streets, and, and the women and the children that they protect from, you know, sexual trafficking and things like that. Honestly, people have no idea. They think that our southern border is just people trying to come in and look for a better life. And we know that's not true, right? Absolutely not. Listen, you have terrorists from all around the country that know that there's a way in at the border. They're going to use it. They have used it in the past. I mean, it's notorious. It's a notorious conduit for, you know, people from... Eastern, uh, uh, Eastern Europe, I mean, everywhere, right? Uh, uh, Asia, everywhere coming in through there that are terrorists, right? And making their way into the country, right? Because they know that all this madness is going on, you know? So there are holes in the system and, 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 and you know, holes in the fence, so to speak, right? And 
they come on in. It's, it's, it's crazy. And the people that are being affected the most by it um, are black and brown communities. And these are the people that they're purportedly trying to help. And exactly. Not. Exactly. Yeah. Angel, how do you think that pro-law enforcement citizens can best <clears throat> um, help support their police officers, regardless of where they might live or work? So I always say that the police cannot do their job effectively without the community. And the community won't thrive without a good police force, right? Um, the community has to continue to uh, help their police, you know, continue to give information. Homicides don't get solved without the phone call from a source, you know, from a member of the community who saw what happened. Uh, robbery patterns don't get closed. Uh, the community, the police cannot do their job effectively without the community. The best way, I mean, other than, you know, uh, coffee with a cop and bringing, you know, food to the station, all that stuff is great for morale. And, and, and I'm certainly not saying not to do that, but on a larger scope, uh, the, the, the collaboration between police and community, that has to get tighter, right? Because without the community, police can't do their jobs. It just won't happen. So they have to continue to support their police uh, by reporting crimes, uh, staying vigilant, being the eyes and the ears. Uh, when I was on a JTTF, uh, I went to do an interview in a housing project in Brooklyn. And my partner who was an FBI agent, he was a phenomenal guy. He was a retired uh, major from the United States Marine Corps. Uh, he was a fantastic guy. Um, but he, you know, he wasn't raised in the streets of the Bronx or the streets of the city. And I, I, I would tell him, you see that lady up in the window, the old lady on her pillow? She knows everything about everybody in this building. She knows what's going on in the, in the streets. She knows what's going on inside the, inside the building. You know, who's doing what inside. So those resources, right, those little old ladies, they have to continue to help us, right? Because without that, we can't do our jobs. Absolutely. I'll tell you, Angel, I could, I could spend all day talking to you. I so appreciate you uh, spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org.